Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, would you please turn it with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we are in the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus comes to three disciplines that he says Christians are, ought to be practicing, but which have been usurped and trumped by the religious establishment, by the conservatives, if you will. Much like many things are trumped by liberals, other things are trumped by conservatives. And the gospel speaks to both parties. The Pharisees had taken fasting and made it all about them instead of all about Jesus. And so would you please give your attention to God's word as Avery reads it for us now. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your word now and by it would you change our hearts? Help us to walk out of this room knowing ourselves better and seeing you as more beautiful and believable than we could have ever imagined. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of months ago, I was up in my attic. And it just came out without consciously even thinking about it. Yes, I found you. And there it was, next to the old Christmas lights and a family photo album, my favorite omelet pan. <laughs> now this omelet pan's a big deal because I had tried for years, indeed four years in Owasso, to try to cook omelets on second-rate omelet pans. And they just didn't feel the same. They were runny. I couldn't flip them the same way. Do you see that? I couldn't flip them the same way. And I, I didn't mean to find it, but there it was with a little red sticker that you get when you move, item 301. Sometimes, well, in many cases, there are spiritual disciplines that are wonderful tools for producing fantastic meals that have been buried, that have been lost. Like my favorite omelet pan, fasting has been lost in the move. And in this text, we find it. So let's pull it out and let's use it well, shall we? Jesus only talks about fasting. He only teaches about fasting, rather, one time. And that time is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. The Pharisees had taken this concept of fasting, which Jesus also practiced, as we'll see soon, as you know from being in the wilderness and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. But the Pharisees had taken this practice that was only once commanded in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And they had said, you know what? Let's use this as a calling card to show how spiritual we are. And so by the time of Jesus' day, the Pharisees didn't just fast one day a year. They decided to fast twice a week 
on Mondays and on Thursdays. And so it should be no surprise to you or to me or even to his disciples when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount before many of these Pharisees who are looking in. And Jesus addresses fasting the same way he addresses giving, the same way he addresses prayer. When you fast, you do not fast so that the world sees you fast because then you have received your reward, your daily wage. In Greek, your misthon. You've gotten your reward. There it is. The You're so spiritual. Thank you. That's your reward. But instead, when you fast, you should comb your hair and take a shower, put on your makeup, live your day as you normally would because you fast before your Father who is in heaven. You do not fast before men. The question for us when it comes to something that's lost in the move, like fasting has been lost in the move, is why do we fast? What is the purpose of fasting? So that's what we're going to look at together before we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Why do we fast? And in looking at that question, we will begin to rediscover this wonderful tool that has been lost in the move. Let's look at the text, if you would. Jesus assumes you will fast. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, and when you fast. You see that? And then again at verse 17. What does it say in verse 17? Lower your eyes to the text. But when you fast. I heard it twice. When you fast. When you fast. Jesus assumes that his disciples fast. He assumes that we fast. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, fasting was for like the super spiritual people. And they usually talked about it in a way that made them feel kind of weird. And I didn't really understand fasting. I didn't really, nobody ever taught me what it meant. And um, and then one day somebody invited me to practice it. And they invited me to practice it um, on a weekend when um, I was younger and just to let it help me pray. And it was, it was interesting how fasting as a tool for prayer became profoundly helpful for me. And friends, many of the reasons why some of you don't feel very close to the Lord, you have been a Christian for many, many years, but you have worn yourself out by listening to reading this book or doing this or that, and you've gone to spiritual disciplines to try to somehow prop your relationship with God up, some of you need to stop doing that and to let this sermon help recalibrate you to the point of spiritual disciplines. And others of you need to try it, to get off the couch, and to begin to obey do the things that God calls us to do, like prayer, and even use the tools God calls us to use, like fasting. Jesus did not abolish fasting as a practice, but he did assume it. And Jesus never commanded fasting as a practice, but he gives it to us. What is the purpose of fasting? 
in Luke chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 4, as soon as Jesus is baptized, do you remember the story? John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. He has this incredibly incredible moment together with his father and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. The father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after that, the verse says, and then the spirit of God led him into the desert where he was tempted by the devil. And in the desert, what did Jesus do? Jesus fasted. And if Jesus Christ needed to fast, dare I say that we ought to give serious contention to fasting as well. Jesus fasted for three reasons we find in Matthew chapter 4. One was to help him pray. That is the reason he was out there. The second was to help fight sin and temptation, which he did perfectly, which you and I do not. But Jesus fought the temptation through fasting. And thirdly, Jesus fasted in order to know himself better. Jesus became more self-aware. Indeed, it says in Hebrews 5.8 that Jesus learned obedience through his affliction. He never disobeyed, but he also learned obedience through the spiritual practices, and one of those was fasting. So, how do we fast? If you're a note taker, line number one on your outline, first, you fast to remember Jesus Christ. That is why you fast. The very beginning of Scripture is a story about Adam and Eve in the garden. And God gave Adam one command. And what was the command that God gave Adam? Do you remember it? He says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God said to Adam, Adam, I'm going to place one dietary restriction upon you. That is, I'm going to go so far, Adam, as to ask you to fast from one tree in the midst of a garden of beautiful trees. Just one. And Adam broke the fast. And he disobeyed the Lord. And all of humanity fell with Adam in that one sin. And I don't know about you, but I, quite frankly, I don't think about the original sin as a broken fast, but that's exactly what it was. And so therefore, Adam ate from the cursed tree in Genesis 3, 6. And then, eventually God calls out Moses from the Exodus. And Moses leads Israel out of captivity. And God calls Moses to go to Mount Sinai into his presence. And what does he call Moses himself to do? Moses, I want you to fast in my presence for 40 days. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, 9 and in Deuteronomy 10, 10, that I was up on the mountain and I fasted with the Lord for 40 days. And he comes down from the mountain and he gives to his people a law. And he says to them in Leviticus chapter 11, hey, listen, I want you to eat of certain foods and I want you to abstain from certain foods. In other words, I want you, O people of God, to fast from certain foods to set yourself apart for the nation so that when they look at you, they will see that you're different, that you're odd, that you're strange, that you are my people that you live by my commands. And God instituted a ceremonial fast from certain foods for the nation of Israel. And then later on in Isaiah, which Lance read earlier, Israel did not keep the fast. And they looked to God and said, God, like, why, why don't you hear us when we pray? It's because you're not keeping the fast I called you to. It wasn't just a fast from food. It was, a, it was a fast to love others and do mercy and to show justice to the world. 
The truth of the matter is there's only one place in the Old Testament, as I mentioned, that Jesus or that God commands a fast. And it is on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. You shall afflict yourself. And the Hebrew word for afflict there encompasses a fast. But by the time of Jesus' day, the Pharisees had long forgotten the storyline of fasting. That it was an original command given to Adam which he broke. Fasting was a practice to set people apart as the people of God. Fasting was indeed what Ezekiel says will one day turn into feasting when the Messiah comes. Fasting was what Zechariah said. One day all of your fasts shall cease and you will feast in my presence forever. And the Pharisees, as good religious conservatives that they were, much like me and you, they took fasting as something suggested, indeed only commanded once a year, and they turned it into the trump card to determine their spirituality. So the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus' day, fasted on Monday and on Thursday. So it's no surprise that when Jesus is speaking here about the nature of spiritual disciplines in giving and in praying and in fasting, that Jesus very directly goes after the practice of fasting because they had forgotten the point of it to begin with. We have lost fasting in the move. Today we find it. Let us use it well. In the New Testament, you see Jesus is fasting in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 when he goes into the wilderness. You see that Jesus is having a meal with his disciples and John's disciples come up to him in Matthew chapter 9 and they say, listen, like, we don't understand what's going on. You guys are like, we're fasting. But you guys are like partying. And Jesus says, they have no reason to fast. I'm, I'm here. I'm with them. I am the fulfillment of everything that Zechariah said. I'm the fulfillment of everything that Ezekiel pointed to. There will be a day, though, when I am not here, and then they can join you in fasting. In Luke 22, the end of the Gospels, Jesus calls his disciples together on the night of Passover on the night that Israel traditionally fasts. And what does Jesus do? He has a meal. And he offers them in this meal his body and his blood. And it was though Jesus was trying to show his disciples, brothers, the entire point of the story of the gospel is that we broke God's commandments. And no matter how hard you try to earn merit with God, you cannot on your own account. But Jesus says to his disciples, Adam broke the fast, but I have kept it for you. I have fasted from sin to be your righteous sacrifice in your place so that you might no longer be a slave to sin, but you might indeed be covered with my righteousness. And now what do I offer you? Not a list of five ways to be a better person. I offer you myself. And I give you my body and my blood. And of course, three days later, Jesus dies. And then 
Sunday after that Friday, Jesus rises again on the third day. And then, 40 days later, Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand. And we, friends, live between the times of Jesus' first coming and his return. And we are now called back into this great spiritual discipline of fasting, if you, if you would choose to do it, as a tool to help you in prayer, to fight sin, and to grow in yourself awareness. The first reason why you fast is, number one, to remember Jesus Christ. The whole story of redemptive history talks about him. The great Adam, the second Adam, who kept the fast the first Adam could not keep in order that we might not starve, but we might feast forever in his presence. Isn't that beautiful? Like that's the gospel that we have to extend to the world. The second reason you fast is that anytime you remember something, it should always trigger an action. And for us, we imitate Jesus. Dallas Willard wrote in The Spirit of the Disciplines, how can you trust Jesus as Redeemer and not trust him in what he says to do? And of course, what he says to do is what he did. People who say they trust in Jesus as redeem and Redeemer and do not bend every effort to obey him are self-deceived. When God's word tells us to be holy, we look to Christ. And we look to Christ as an example for us, not in order to earn our salvation, but in order for us to live it out in the world. And just as Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, so also we have found this great tool in the attic, if you will, of the church. And we are bringing it back out to put it back to use and to do it well, if you can do it without hypocrisy. In the early church, they, they thought it'd be a good idea to institute a cultural fast, a, a, a communal fast, rather. And so they said, listen, let's not fast on Monday and Thursdays like the Pharisees. The Didache in the early church was an early church instruction manual, and it said Christians will fast on Wednesdays and Fridays of every week. It was optional, but they will fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Why? To remember Jesus' betrayal, which we were all a part of, and to remember his death. And by the fourth century, the church took this great idea, a great idea, holy, great in and of itself, perfect use of fasting, fine. But the early church said, let's, let's ramp it up a little bit. And their motives, I, I, I can totally relate to why they would do this. Let's say that the 40 days, just like Jesus fasted between uh, when he was in the wilderness. Let's hold a fast 40 days before Easter. And let's abstain. Let's, let's volitionally choose to abstain from something for those 40 days. And so the early church started something called Lent, which is beautiful in and of itself. It's beautiful. It is a wonderful tool for us to use. It shouldn't bind your conscience. It's not commanded in Scripture. But it is a wonderful season of reflection for you to abstain for something to grow in your prayer life, to be able to fight sin and to be able to grow in self-awareness. It's a wonderful thing. The problem was when Lent became institutionalized in the monastic period between the 4th and the 8th centuries, the, the monks would then use Lent as a way to one-up themselves. They would fast from everything from food to clothing, from talking to speaking. 
and soon Lent kind of became this ritual that we would practice that would show how beautiful we were before the Lord as though we had all forgotten Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And fasting became lost in the move. So by the time Martin Luther begins the Protestant Reformation, Luther had this to say about fasting. The ancient fathers may have meant well and observed fasts properly, but the filth soon overwhelmed and ruined it and made it worthless. And that is just what it deserved. As it was merely hum a human plaything to have these many special fasts and soon it denigrated into shameful abuse. The church around the time of the Reformation had as many as 108 fast days that Christians were to practice throughout the year. They took something that was assumed to be practiced by Jesus, assumed to be practiced by Christians, and they raised it up to legislate it to a position that it was never meant to have. Do you hear what I'm saying? We do this all the time with many things in contemporary evangelical life. We say that there are certain things you must do in order for God to love you. If you don't have a quiet time every day, then God will love you less. We should be in God's word every day. It's a wonderful thing to be in God's word. We should read it and meditate on it and marinate in it. But he does not love you one ounce less if you miss. Why? Because he has set his love upon you and set you apart. And he wants you to walk in your Christian life through repentance, which gives birth to diving into his word and to fasting and to the spiritual disciplines. Repentance is always the root of the fruit of spiritual disciplines. Repentance is not the fruit of the root of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines is always, they are always the fruit of the root of repentance. Never the reverse. And if you try it in the reverse, you will wear yourself out because you will feel exhausted by trying to earn God's merit and favor. You remember Jesus Christ in fasting. You imitate Jesus Christ in fasting. And thirdly, you anticipate Jesus Christ in your fasting. Zechariah in chapter seven through nine says that there will one day come a prosperity for Jerusalem, speaking to the people of God. And one day the fasts will cease and they will all turn to feasting in his presence. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, your disciples are to wait. You are to keep your lamps burning to wait for the master to come home from the wedding feast. In Matthew chapter 25, the 10 virgins are waiting for their bridegroom, Christ Jesus, to come. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, it talks about a husband and a wife, the church in Christ. And Paul says the church is to wait for the bridegroom to come and to take her away and enjoy her forever. We are, as Christians, living between the times of the already and the not yet. Already saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But not yet completely saved because we are still ravaged by sin. To say it another way, we are free from the penalty of our sin, but we are not free from the power of our sin. We are free from the guilt of our sin. We are not free from its grip. 
And John Owen says that in the midst of trying to learn how to commune with God, John Owen is an old 17th century English Puritan. John Owen gives this illustration, which the staff has been talking about and staffing in the last couple of weeks. He says, when you're anticipating Christ's return, you must walk over the belly of your lusts. You must be killing sin. He has a very famous line. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And right after that, he gives an illustration and he says, you know what it's like? It's like you're trying to dissect a leopard. And many of you have tried to dissect a leopard because when you try to put to death the deeds of your flesh, you are horribly unsuccessful. <laughs> because when you try to dissect a wild animal, you're going to get scratched and bitten you're going to be attacked and you are not going to walk out of there unscathed. Instead, you are to put the animal to sleep. And Owen goes on to say that the way you put the animal to sleep is that you let the gospel rest on him as an anesthetic. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is the command of God, the call of God on the Christian, and there is the comfort of God for the Christian. And they must be kept together. We are to obey God's commands, but you cannot begin to obey God's commands unless you are able to rest in the comfort of the gospel, which is, just as Mark preached last week, that Jesus foreknew you since before the dawn of time and predestined you in love, that he set his love upon you. And then as you and I begin to understand what that means and we live out who we are, we rest in the good news that Jesus loves you like, he really does, even though you don't think he does. And you are not so bad that he doesn't love you. And even more than that, he calls you his brother. And he calls you a co-heir with him. Like, in that sense, Jesus is proud of you. And you need to rest in the good news that Jesus sings over you his love and allow that to anesthetize your flesh so that when you can, go and you can go and dissect it then and then you can really begin to do surgery. You cannot fight sin unless you first rest in the comfort of the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to do that because our job is to anticipate Jesus Christ's return so that we can stand ready when he returns. Not asleep at the wheel, our lamps can keep burning the purpose of fasting is not to one-up your neighbor. The purpose of fasting is to remember Jesus Christ, the second Adam who kept the fast that the first Adam could not keep so that we might enjoy feasting in his presence forever and in love. The purpose of fasting is to imitate Jesus and to do so because of who you are, to help you grow more dependent upon your heavenly Father, to help you recognize you are utterly dependent upon him and you are not self-sufficient. And the purpose of fasting is to imitate, not just to imitate him, but to anticipate Jesus' return. Friends, fasting has been lost in the move. And here, this one little sliver of the passage in the New Testament, Jesus brings it back for us to think on. And if you're going to be able to practice this, not hypocritically, but honestly, you've got to remember the story into which you walk, that of Jesus 
as the one who's able to keep fast so that you might be able to do all of your spiritual disciplines in an intellectually and spiritually honest way. Yes, I found it. Oh, the spiritual discipline of fasting pulled out from the history of the church for us in 2006 because of this text. Let us consider it. Let us use it well when we do use it because we are God's people called to remember him, called not only to remember him but to imitate him, called to anticipate him. And here God gives us a fantastic tool to help us. And friends, in just a moment, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And repentance is the tool to begin to help you. And this table, which we will fence in just a minute, is a table to remind you that you cannot keep the fast. And that Jesus Christ invites you into a feast because he himself bore your sins on his body on that tree so that we might one day rise again with him to newness of life, our bodies fully intact, just as Jesus' physical body was after the resurrection, and be whole and be with him for all eternity in heaven. That's wonderful news. That's hope for you and that's hope for me. So let's prepare to run to this table of feasting in the presence of Jesus, the one who calls us to fast no more and to feast on far more than bread. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to use the tool you've given us in fasting as a way to express our sorrow over our sin, but more than that, as a way to joyfully remember our Savior, as a way to imitate him, as a way to know ourselves better, as a way to anticipate his coming. Father, forgive us for the times when we do things hypocritically like the Pharisees. Lord, help us to be able to walk in intellectually honest ways, spiritually honest ways, knowing the depths of our heart. And would you now prepare us for that as we give and as we come and eat. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.